You're listening to At Home in Oregon, a podcast about housing policy. I'm your host, Shelley Dennison. Today, I'm talking to Ethan Stuckmeyer. Ethan is the Senior Planner of Housing Programs with the Department of Land Conservation and Development, and his work, advocacy, and analysis was pivotal in shepherding House Bills 2001 and 2003 through the legislative process. We start by talking about the Oregon housing crisis and what caused the shortage in the state's housing market. We also talk about the tension that exists between state-level and local-level policymaking, and how we can look at different scales of policy in a more inclusive and collaborative way. And just to repeat what I mentioned in the beginning of the last episode, At Home in Oregon is now hosted on Anchor. You can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you like this podcast, consider sharing it with your networks. That would help me out a ton. And with that, here's Ethan. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about you and the work that you do? Sure. My name is Ethan Stuckmeyer. I'm the Senior Housing Planner at the Department of Land Conservation and Development here in the state of Oregon. Um, what I do is work on uh, issues related to housing planning in the state at large, um, but increasingly working with cities to assist them to fulfill the intent, the purpose, the uh, goals of Goal 10, uh, the statewide housing goal, Goal 10, housing. Um, so I spend a lot of my time working with jurisdictions to try to understand how state level regulations interact with local policies and, and standards and determine if those are, uh, I guess, legal at the end of the day uh, within the state context. Um, but then also it's uh, becoming increasingly more collaborative which is uh, really great because uh, the legislature, the Oregon legislature is now kind of dedicated some funding for our department to kind of have a face uh, or, or a group of faces, a housing team uh, to assist cities in implementing goal 10, which is really a first for the state of Oregon. That's awesome. Can you um, just very briefly explain what goal 10 is? Yes, so the statewide planning goals. There are 19 of them in the state of Oregon, and they range from natural hazards to natural resources to um, sands or uh, beaches and dunes and on the coast. Uh, so it really is the framework which uh, the land, Oregon's land use system lives within, right? Those 19 planning goals establish all sorts of regulations about how cities, counties, local governments in general can regulate land use. Goal 10 is one of them, uh, Goal 10 Housing, basically starts with the premise of cities and counties um, should be supplying the housing for all of their residents, uh, future and current, um, and you know, providing housing or facilitating the production of housing to accommodate all levels of income, all types of households, all household sizes, um, and that includes rental and homeownership opportunities. So it is the broad framework that we live within in the state of Oregon to plan for needed housing, uh, both today and tomorrow. Great. So 
one of the reasons why it's so important for cities to plan for that needed housing is because Oregon has is experiencing a housing shortage. Um, would you say that's true? Yes, I was emphatically okay. nodding my head. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think the, the numbers and the data really kind of speak for them themselves. And um, even beyond that anecdotal, you know, uh, conversations that I have with people about how hard it is to find affordable rents and how hard it is to buy a house and all of those kind of conversations um, are not uh, unique to people who work in housing. Uh, I think those are kind of like dinner table conversations um, for a lot of households. Yeah, for sure. Um, this is kind of the million dollar question, but what variables do you think went into causing a housing shortage in the state? So many things. Um, there's kind of long-term and short-term factors, like long-term factors. I think, um, you know, those are systemic issues that um, really kind of segregated people based on race, income, any number of factors um, that have taken place for, unfortunately, a really long time in this country mm -hmm. and in this state. Um, and those really, uh, those policies really have a lasting impact on the types of standards and the way that jurisdictions regulate residential development even today. Um, so kind of the short-term factors are, we haven't created enough supply or capacity of housing to accommodate the increase in people that Oregon has experienced. It's a great place to live and a lot of people want to live here. Um, so the demand is really outpacing the supply. And really that's kind of, I think, the key, but part of the reason why the supply issue is such a big one is because we've regulated housing such that it becomes really, really difficult and really, really expensive to build housing in any form or fashion. Um, and so, and specifically, we really focus on building one type of housing um, for the, you know, the past five, six, seven decades. Um, that's really been the focus, single family detached homes. Mm -hmm. And that takes up a lot of land, it uses a lot of resources. They're incredibly expensive on a per unit basis. Um, and so I think it's a combination of factors of really what boils down to, I think, regulations. Um, and an overregulation of housing to a certain hmm. extent. Interesting. So, with that overregulation, do you think there are other factors that play into um, why there's a housing shortage or why um, housing prices continue to increase so quickly? Yeah, I think there's this um, pinch point or a conflict point between wanting to provide enough housing for current and future residents and the constant need to increase property values over time. The whole, the whole purpose of increasing housing options and housing choice is to bring down the overall cost of all housing. And I think that is uh, really tough for homeowners in particular to kind of, that's a hard pill to swallow um, when they've kind of over the past years and years and years have seen their kind of property values increasing over time. And, now there's new, um, new uh, uh, goals and strategies and policies that are trying to kind of slow that down a little bit. And I think that really 
kind of weird weirds people out a little bit, and so mm -hmm. they put up barriers and um, make it a little bit more difficult to provide the housing that's really necessary. Yeah, and you know this might be you know a, a wicked problem to try to solve, but how do you think we um, speak to those people? How do you think we sort of persuade people that? Um, you know, yeah, an increase in housing production might slow down your property value, um, but it's also good for, you know, the good of society. How do you persuade property owners of that? I think you, you nailed it with the wicked problem uh, title there because it is a tough one. Um, the, I think the conversation really needs to switch to more of a picture yourself in this kind of scenario or think back to a time when you were um, just coming out of high school or college or something like that and you couldn't buy a house or um, you needed to live in an apartment just based on your your situation and we really need to be kind of focusing in on those that continuum of housing you know you're not um, people it's ideal to kind of continually move up the rungs of the ladder in in the continuum of housing from you know, living with your parents and moving out and going out on your own and potentially renting and then buying a house in the future and married and kids and so on and so forth. There's that kind of uh, instinctive path. But I think um, the more we can steer the conversation to say, really, it is a continuum. You can go up and you can go down and circumstances change where you're not always kind of um, advancing up that, that continuum. So... I think that really resonates with people when you can kind of tell the story and um, I've, I've used the technique in the past where I describe points in my life where I've needed a certain type of housing and sometimes it's not always available and um, you know here's somebody right in front of you telling you that they, they couldn't find what, what they needed and we need to make a concerted effort to provide that. Yeah, you know it's so interesting that it seems like that's what it keeps coming back to is that narrative structure um, of telling the story of of what need looks like that it's not some abstract disembodied you know Californian mm. who's wanting to move to Oregon it's you know it's it's people who have real needs um, and those needs aren't being met by the current market right. um, yeah a project that I'm working on in the city that I work in is a, I'm working on a story map about housing as sort of a fact-finding project for our upcoming housing needs analysis. Um, and I'm including a combination of kind of hard quantitative data with the storytelling element. So I'm interviewing different people who live in the city about their experience buying housing, affording housing, finding somewhere to live, um, and across like the income spectrum. But I'm really focusing on those middle income experiences, you know, the teacher and the firefighter and the EMT, you know, those people, we want them to live in our city. Um, you know, but what are their their struggles? What are their obstacles in being able to access and afford housing? And I'm hopeful that including that narrative piece will um, be able to kind of drive some progressive change in the city. I really, I really think that that's a, that's a, that's a great way to go about it um, because those, you know, putting names and faces to those, um, those stories is incredibly important. Um, 
because you can just picture it. You know, it's it's really mm-hmm. easy for somebody to uh, just kind of dismiss all of those. Well, that's somebody else's problem, or there's no face to the name, or um, no face to the problem or the issue. And I think that'll be a really great resource for your elected body. Yeah, I hope so. Um, so let's talk about the state's response to this housing shortage. So you were uh, pretty integral in the process of getting House Bill 2001 and 2003 adopted. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, so House Bill 2001 and 2003 were passed in the 2019 legislative session. Um, and leading up to that, you know, that was pre-COVID world. Um, and even then the housing crisis was just a, it was a, a crisis. <laughs> um, and really I think 2001 in particular, the middle housing bill was a, a follow-up to a couple pieces of legislation, some not even in the state of Oregon. The first, which was in the state of Oregon, was Senate Bill 1051, which allowed ADUs in conjunction with um, any single-family detached home in cities of a certain size in, in Oregon. Um, and that was really kind of the first step in talking, beginning the conversation about housing choice. Right? We should have these kind of these different options for people to rent or own um, that are kind of affordable by design. They're smaller, therefore they're they're probably less expensive to rent or own. And that was a good first step. And then the other piece was um, the city of Minneapolis, actually, Minnesota. Um, That was the first city to, on on a real scale, end the exclusive single family zoning in their city. And that happened in 2018, 2019 was when House Bill 2001 passed and the, uh, the stakeholders and the advocates for House Bill 2001, I think really learned from the success of uh, the city of Minneapolis um, and the coalition that was constructed to really push for House Bill 2001 was made up of players who don't usually, you know, not on the same side. Uh, Realtors and housing advocate, fair housing advocates, and uh, uh, um, sprawl uh, people who are against sprawl or advocates for uh, efficient building and home builders associations were all kind of on the same team, and so it was really um, that group that came together to kind of create this betterment of society bill uh, to provide housing options for for people. Um, and I think it was just really uh, an understanding that the crisis is a crisis and we need to do something about it. And um, the state was in a good position to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm so interested in kind of that, um, that inherent tension that exists between state level policy and local level policy, because there's pros and cons for each, right? At the state level, you get um, wide applicability. Everybody has to adhere to whatever standard gets set. Whereas at the local level, you get kind of more of that context and more of that knowledge that, that you know, helps drive, um, you know, a site-specific, a city-specific policy. Um, why do you think that something like House Bill 2001 needed to come from the state as opposed to being more of a bottom-up, a localized policy? Yeah, I think there's a couple couple things there. First, um, 
it's not like duplexes or middle housing generally are a new concept. They're not a new housing type um, that, you know, there's no uh, cutting edge technology that now facilitated the production of these kind of multiplex units. The option has always been there. Um, and I think some of the, um, the advocates for House Bill 2001 really leaned into that saying, you know, now is the time for the state to take this action because cities have kind of had their chance for a long time to do this at the local level, ground up level. Um, and they just haven't taken, taken the, the opportunity to do it. Um, and I think it was kind of this, this stewing pot of all of these factors where, you know, this is kind of a, uh, the conversation was reigniting about middle housing, kind of traditional housing types um, being good for our cities, good for our neighborhoods, good for our communities. And then you're kind of pairing that with another, a city has already kind of done that. The first domino has really kind of fallen at this point. And oh, by the way, rents and housing prices are skyrocketing in the background while we're doing all of this work. And it was kind of this perfect storm of all of these factors. And I think it was really that combination that tipped the scales. Um, but I think it is, it's important for states to take that action because like I mentioned, cities haven't, haven't really done it on their own before. Um, and I think there's an inherent um, reaction to states taking that action because they feel like it's the state stepping in front of a city's jurisdiction of, of themselves uh, or ability to regulate themselves, which, I mean, I can see that, but ultimately House Bill 2001 increased options for property owners within their cities. Um, it does not mandate middle housing by any means. It allows property owners to choose that option if they, um, if they would like, which they did not have that option prior to House Bill 2001. So I think um, a lot of that uh, nervousness and heartburn falls on a misunderstanding of really what House Bill 2001 does mm -hmm. and what it means. Yeah. yeah, and I totally agree with you. And I, I also think that um, that benefit of local knowledge and local context can really be captured with the compliance to House Bill 2003, right, with this housing needs analysis and housing production strategy that's very localized and very specific to you know to a city um do you know of any cities in oregon that are enacting their own housing friendly local level policies yeah a few um the the big one of course is the city of portland with their residential infill project that was actually that actually predated house bill 2001 um the first phase of that actually um they had been talking about middle housing kind of upzoning land for five to seven years prior to House Bill 2001. Um, and just really, they really focused in on, you know, having these conversations with community groups and looking at the impacts. You know, they did a, a big displacement study and gentrification study on the potential impacts of the residential infill project, upzoning um, lots to allow multiplexes. Um, but then there's others across the state. Um, uh, city of Milwaukee comes to mind. They've uh, done some work on allowing cottage clusters um, and 
some cities in Washington County, uh, Beaverton, Hillsborough have done the legwork to uh, really set themselves up for success with House Bill 2001. And then even outside of the metro, um, cities like the City of Talent were, prior to the wildfires in 2020, were really kind of pushing the envelope in Southern Oregon and uh, achieving housing types that um, other cities in that region just uh, weren't allowing. So I think, again, 2019 and, and beyond, or before that was, um, cities were just looking for options. You know, what are these tools that we can kind of pull out of the toolbox to address the very real needs that we see on the ground all the time, every day, um, and what can we do about it? So cities were definitely taking action prior. Mm -hmm. Do you know of any um, state level policy that's kind of on its way through the legislative pipeline that that's going to be coming up? For Oregon specifically? Yeah. So we just exited the, um, the 2021 session, uh, which ended June 30th. And there was a few housing related bills that were that passed as a result of mm -hmm. that session. The big one that DLCD has been working on is a follow up to House Bill 2001, uh, which is titled Senate Bill 458. It allows for the division of land. A property owner can come to the city and say, hey, I have a, land, a piece of land that allows middle housing now as a result of House Bill 2001, and I would like to divide that land into an equal number of lots um, to, you know, a quadplex or something like that. So mm -hmm. they propose a quadplex, they could divide that piece of property into four different lots um, and build, you know, kind of four units on individual lots. And the hope for Senate Bill 458 is that it would create more home ownership opportunities because you can then sell those lots individually um, and not have to do kind of like a condoization of those lots. It just really makes it a lot cheaper and there's less administrative headache to move those those pieces of property in the future. Right. In addition to that, there's um, lots of work that's been uh, being completed by the legislature to really put money forward for capital A, affordable housing, kind of subsidized housing, major, major investments, something like $900 million in wow. um, subsidy to Oregon, and, Oregon Housing and Community Services, which is the state's housing finance agency. Um, so just massive, massive um, financial monetary investments by the legislature in, in housing. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I'm, I'm interested in getting your take on the communications piece of how we communicate with city leaders who are skeptical about um, the intention of House Bill 2001, of what it's going to mean, of, you know, is this just an infringement on, you know, our local level control, our home rule? How do you think we can better communicate with um, those city leaders? Yeah, and I'm glad, I'm glad we came back to this because you had a comment in uh, er, a little earlier that I thought was really important. I'm glad I get to jump back on it. Yeah. Um, I think the, the conflict that I think exists at the local level is just that, where they feel like the state is, you know, blocking their ability to regulate themselves with House Bill 2001. And they're afraid that it sets precedent, that it can happen much more in the future. And I, I definitely share that concern. I think the, 
Oregon land use system has been created to uh, avoid that scenario where um, cities, you know, have the ability to solicit community engagement, have the conversation amongst themselves and regulate themselves in a way that's still compliant with state law. But that last part, compliant with state law, is the, the key piece. Um, House Bill 2001 creates a scenario where the state legislature has set a policy direction to do a certain thing and the cities still retain the ability to regulate regulate themselves, choose their own siting and design standards for middle housing, and make those ultimate decisions. However, there's just kind of bounds on that. You can't really create unreasonable cost and delay to the development of middle housing. And that's really a key piece. We shouldn't be treating these new housing options any differently than we've been treating single-family detached homes. That, at least that's the paradigm of Hospital 2001. And so... I think both of those scenarios can exist at the same time. The state can regulate the direction and the city can regulate themselves along that direction. They, they're not mutually exclusive. They can happen in, in uh, they can coexist together. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I also think this is something I'm kind of chewing on because we have a rather conservative city council um, who are not fans of house bill 2001 or 2003. And I think often the best way to persuade somebody to your side is to start with speaking a language that they already understand. Mm -hmm. And so speaking the language of, you know, lowering, you know, the regulatory capacity of the government, um, you know, decreasing the uh, ability of the government to tell private property owners what they can and can't do with their land, you know, trying to go at it from that angle, um, I, I find that that's successful with residents, that they can get residents to understand, you know, your neighbor has property rights and they are allowed to develop their land and the government is not allowed to tell them that they can't develop their land. All we can do is make sure they follow the development code. And um, So I think, you know, finding a language that the person you're trying to persuade already speaks is, um, is useful and is... Uh, sometimes sometimes not um uh successful in in persuading somebody to to understand a different position um so i'm also interested in getting your take on um whether or not we can predict the success of house bill 2001 because there's obviously the possibility that we've put all of the resources into passing this legislation and you know, cities have put a lot of time and, and effort into updating their development codes. And um, but it, there's there's obviously the possibility of developers deciding it's not going to pencil to uh, propose middle housing types. Um, so do you think we can predict a more successful outcome of House Bill 2001? I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think <clears throat> I think what we can do is provide the options to property owners to make those decisions for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and the intent of House Bill 2001, I think, is to facilitate that, that thinking, that line of thinking, those performers that um, developers run and property owners run to see if it works out. 
Um, House Bill 2001 does not, um, does not solve the housing crisis that we're in. I think it's part of a broader solution. And if it is successful, that means that we've, uh, I think success means for House Bill 2001, it means that we see a decrease in the cost of housing. Um, mm -hmm. And whether that's through a boom in quadplex development, or if it's a infill scenario of incremental growth in number of units because we've built a lot of duplexes, both of those are, in my mind, a success of House Bill 2001. Um, if we can see that the kind of overall cost of housing is, is something that's achievable to people, uh, to households. And so, you know, there's all sorts of analysis that folks like to run about, is this actually going to create housing affordability or, or more affordable housing? And I think um, while those numbers are really important, um, I think the understanding that it's kind of like middle housing and House Bill 2003 and housing production strategies and providing accountable um, land use system where we are providing or we're facilitating the production of all housing types. That's kind of the important part of both House Bill 2001 and 2003. I, I guess it's, it's less so the number of duplexes that we build and more so the overall effect that whatever number we build uh, has on the overall market, so. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, I'm, I'm so fascinated to see what kind of effect House Bill 2001 and re-legalizing metal housing is going to have on Oregon's housing landscape. And I'm hopeful that it's positive, that it increases housing choice, that it increases housing availability. And um, like you put it, increases options for that um, continuum of housing. Mm -hmm. um, it's so, hard to know. Yeah. Sorry. Um, no, go it's ahead. It's hard to know the overall impact that House Bill 2001 will have because it's a long-term strategy. It's not, um, it's not a five-year policy. It's a 50-year it's a you know, neighborhood change type of policy. The city of Minneapolis, you know, they passed their change in 2018. And then the next year when it was all legal and there was all the headlines and all of the energy behind their comprehensive plan change, they got three triplex applications mm -hmm. the next year. And so it's, it, it's just not a full, full on rapid change type of, type of policy. It is really mo much more of a long-term game. Yeah, for sure. For yeah. sure. Um, and sometimes, you know, especially when you're dealing with scaled up policy at a state level or a federal level, it's very incremental and yes. big wheels turn slow. Yes. Um, but sometimes they can be the most impactful policies to enact. Um, so one last question that I like to ask people, um, if you had complete control, complete power, complete dominion, to enact any one housing policy that you wanted in the state of Oregon, what would you do? Oh boy, lots of things come to mind. I'm thinking about infrastructure costs, I'm thinking about system development charges, but if I had to choose one, I think the way that we um, in Oregon 
pay for and finance infrastructure to facilitate housing production is um, really to our disservice, is really doing us a disservice. Um, cities are really kind of handcuffed into charging lots of money on a building permit to extend or provide money to uh, accommodate the increased infrastructure demand that, as, that results from any type of development. And I think that's really part of, um, part of that equation is the way that we charge property taxes in the state of Oregon. Um, things like Measure 5, Measure 50, if you're a land use planner, you're probably familiar with those, um, with those measures. But it is really something that I think plays a major part in how we create and build and develop housing. So um, if I had to choose one, I think it's probably restructuring the tax and infrastructure uh, financing framework concept in the state of Oregon. Interesting. That's so interesting. I love that answer. Um, yeah, and, and I love how that really reveals how closely intertwined, you know, housing and infrastructure are with each other. Um, yeah, well, thank you so much for agreeing to to be interviewed for this podcast. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, I've been listening in and enjoying the episodes, so I'm um, looking forward to hearing more. And yeah, again, thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you. This has been At Home in Oregon. You can find us online at athomeinor.com. There you can listen to previous episodes, learn more about these topics that we've talked about, and you can even consider donating to help support the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, you can send me an email at home in or at gmail.com. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen. Thank you so much. We'll be back in two weeks.